0: But it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. This is Outside In. I'm Taylor
1: Quimby, in today for Sam Evans-Brown. Today, we are republishing an episode we published
2: two years ago in 2018. And listening back, spoiler, starts with a little news montage— But we could basically swap out all the clips we put in there from 2018 and replace them with new, even more dramatic clips from the last month or two. Because this episode is all about wildfires. Specifically, about policies and ecologies shaped by fire, in ways that involve a lot of human intention and care, and in ways that demonstrate the opposite. So, as it is still wildfire season in California and the American West, We thought now was a good time to re up this one. Without further ado, here it is 10 by 10, Pine Barrens. Another year, another record breaking wildfire season.
1: The so-called car fire has burned nearly 150 square miles. The fire has
3: killed six people, including three members of one family. 17 large fires burning in all. The car fire has destroyed over 700 homes and so far forced nearly 40,000 to evacuate.
2: Thanks to climate change, the fire season now starts sooner, ends later, and is more intense. Scientists also say that climate change will make lightning more frequent and winds more powerful. Basically, the world is a tinderbox.
3: Six other major fires are burning across the state, all fueled by high winds, dry conditions, and triple-digit temperatures. So we're in the spot where the vortex actually came through. You can see it it ripped apart fences over here.
4: It's like a war zone. It's just like like a bomb just hit.
2: But what if I told you that maybe the problem with all these big out of control fires was not enough fire? Okay, scene change. I'm standing in a little patch of forest with bumpy, narrow dirt paths for ATVs running through it in Northern New Hampshire, surrounded by firefighter types. Well, I should say, I'm standing between two completely different forests because on one side of this dirt path, the forest is thick Dense, like so many trees and shrubs and leg grabby, ankle twisty plants that it would not be much fun to walk through. But on the other side of the path. Can you describe it? So this is just a pitch pine dominated ecosystem here. Can you describe it like in oh. words that a general person would understand? <laughs> <laughs> this is Luke Romance great name, I know. And as of last fall, he was a seasonal worker with the Nature Conservancy. This is almost a savannah almost. It's still definitely a forest, but like I say, it's very open. It's nice pine trees, uh, pitch
5: pine. And you see you got white pine right next to you, white pine. Got a lot more branches kind of world. Pitch pine are a little more scraggly, actually. They don't look as nice nor you as big, but uh, they're fire adapted. they got thick bark, big plated bark there, and uh, so they can really
2: take some flame and and not get to them. When you walk through the woods on this side of the ATV track, there are tall pines, spaced pretty far apart. A few low, scrubby trees that you have to walk around. There are a lot of blueberry bushes, so many that you can't avoid stepping on them. But it's a lovely place for a stroll. It's open, it's bright, it's definitely not scratching up my arms or making it impossible for me to get anywhere. Something has come through and, like magic... Swept away all the pucker brush. This is called a pine barren. So, what happened on the sunny side of the ATV trail? Someone lit it on fire. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it, and today, we are digging into the differences between that dense, scrubby forest and the clear, open, bright one. This is a segment called 10 by 10, where we look very closely at a very specific spot. Today, it's places that
1: burn.
5: I appreciate the help getting things lined out this morning. Um, For folks that don't know me, my name is John Bailey, and I work with the Nature Conservancy. I'll be acting as the burn boss today.
2: Like I mentioned, this is a team of a couple dozen people suited up in firefighting gear and equipped with water pumps and hoses and are going through a plan to spread out throughout the woods and position themselves to keep a wildfire under control.
5: Did I forget anybody? Any questions?
2: And they will be fighting a fire, but it's one that they're going to intentionally set and help to spread using diesel fuel.
0: This is a drip torch. Um,
2: This is another Nature Conservancy guy, Mike Crawford.
0: So what you have here is um, a 4 to 1 ratio, uh, 4 diesel and a 1 unleaded, straight gas. So, put a little bit of fuel on the ground, light the fuel, and then you light uh, the torch from from that um, area that's lit on the
2: ground. Running around in the woods with a canister of diesel, lighting fires as you go. If this sounds like a recipe for some out-of-control wildfires, let me just dispel that notion right now.
5: Heads up, everybody! Test fire on the ground.
2: These prescribed burns are so... Safe. I'm a trained professional.
1: They wait until the weather is right. Got a dry bulb temperature of 55, wet bulb of 46.
2: They pay scrupulous attention to the wind.
5: Um, we've got a southwest wind. It should be light and variable.
2: They've got several sources of water. They've got the hoses. They've got the pumps. They've got two teams stationed in fire breaks where there are no sticks or plants to burn, ready to make sure the fire can't get past them.
5: Up, uh, south,
2: despite the fact that there are people setting the woods on fire and we're actually standing in the path of the flames, it's actually kind of boring.
1: It's moving slowly towards us. Yeah. Do you think a turtle could outrun this? Right now, yeah, maybe.
2: (laughs) It's so safe.
1: So Burn Boss,
2: give it a letter grade. How are we doing so far? A letter grade. I think we're getting a B for burn. (laughs) So why are they doing this? Well, it's a fire with a job to do.
1: Yeah, so it's, uh, I mean, the the big picture here is that we're trying to maintain this incredibly unique habitat. So uh, these pitch pine scrub oak woodlands are New Hampshire's rarest forest type. That last guy is Jeff Lugie. He's in
2: charge of this whole conflagration. Remember the two very different forests from the two sides of the path from the start of this story? One has been left alone for decades and been allowed to grow up, dense and thick. And the other had been burned a few years before in what's called a prescribed burn. Now there are a few reasons why a woods doctor might prescribe a fire for a particular patch of woods. But let's start with the one at hand. What's going on in this particular New England forest? Here, it's conservationists who are doing these fires in the fall, trying to preserve rare plants and birds and bugs. For instance, whippoorwill live here. That's the bird that sings all night long.
1: You know, they're great to hear, but if you live next to one, you probably want to, like, throw a shoe at it.
2: And the birds aren't the only ones who like the open space. It also attracts a lot of rare moths.
1: The list right now is there's 22 um, state-listed species here. So the rare birds are eating the rare insects. We can live with that.
2: (laughs) These whippoorwills and rare bugs, they need pine barrens to survive. And in turn, the forests,
1: the pine barrens, need fire to exist. They're on very dry soil. Um, So they dry out fast um, and you would get lightning strikes. Not often, um, you know, especially in these northern pine barrens, maybe like every 15 or 20 years uh, that would light a fire and a lot of it would burn. (laughs) And if headlines about wildfires
2: have made you believe that fires and trees don't mix, that in the rock-paper-scissors game, fire always beats tree, that is not the case. The plants in this forest are accustomed to regular fires. They're adapted to not only survive one of the most destructive forces on the planet, but to thrive on it. The dominant tree here is called the pitch pine. It has really thick, plated bark that protects it from flames, and its branches are really high off the ground so that a fire would have to be
0: huge
2: to torch it. Its cones are covered with a thick layer of sticky resin that holds them shut so they can't sprout and form a new tree. That is, until fire comes along to melt the resin and let them pop open up. That way, after a fire has passed and decimated all the competition, pitch pines are the first to bounce back and recolonize. A phoenix rising from the ashes. And even if you do manage to torch the trees, they invest heavily in their roots, storing lots of nutrients there. So after a fire burns it down to a stump, they resprout like the head of a hydro when it's chopped off by a Greek hero. And that's not just true of the pitch pine, but virtually all of the trees here, like another called the scrub oak.
1: Um, there's apparently a guy on Cape Cod that has been doing this little like backyard experiment. He's a scrub oak. He's been continuously cutting every year for 30 years, and it sprouts every year. Yeah, Pretty so, tough to kill them that way? It's pretty tough to kill a scrub oak in general. I mean, you'd have to come out, out here with a bulldozer and plow them out of the ground.
2: <laughs> plants in these ecosystems are so deeply co-evolved with fire that they actually encourage fires. Blueberries, eucalyptus, manzanita, sweet ferns, all of these plants have developed waxy, oily leaves. So they're extra flammable. They uh, you know, they almost explode in the flame. Some people call them self-immolators. This is Paul Gagnon, a fire ecologist who's doing a stint at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. He says this debate over why plants would evolve to be more flammable has been smoldering since 1970. It's kind of a paradox.
5: Why would a plant self-immolate? One idea is that if a plant can burn very hot and intensely, it might burn up its neighbors as well as itself.
2: If you're a plant that can grow back after a fire by sprouting from your roots or by being the first to grow back because of your fire-activated seeds, this is good news for you, or at least for your genes. Even though the individual would be would be harmed or killed in the fire, its
5: offspring would benefit from it having burned up its neighbors. And, and this is a, a hypothesis
2: called kill-thy-neighbor plant as arsonist. This is a really attractive idea, but a lot of biologists point out that flammability could just as easily be a coincidence, as in fire adapted plants have evolved to survive droughts and being eaten by herbivores and grow in poor soils, and all these adaptations also just happen to make them more flammable. But if this is for real, it's an example of plants doing something a lot of us think is just the domain of vertebrates. They're reshaping the forest engineering their environment to be more welcoming for species like them. Species that thrive after a fire. And these plants? They used to run this joint. We know from a bunch of different sources that before the Europeans arrived, there was a lot more fire on the land than there is today. There's this whole spectrum of how well plants tolerate fire. And generally speaking, everywhere east of the Mississippi seems to be sliding away from the fire-tolerant end of the spectrum. And that means that forests like the Pine Barren, where we started this story, used to be much more common. So where were all these fires coming from? In most of the eastern United States and and in parts of the western United States as well,
5: there are something like uh, anywhere from 4 to 16 Cloud to ground lightning strikes per square kilometer per year. And each one of those is, uh, I'm told, hotter than the surface of the sun.
2: This is one version of the story, but there's something else in the data, too. Wherever there was fire, there were people. Who started the fire? Maybe us. That's after the break. Today on Outside In, we are learning about fire-adapted ecosystems. And before the break, we laid out a bit of a chicken-and-egg problem. Archaeologists have noted that wherever there were native settlements, there also tended to be fire-adapted plant species. So, were humans creating these ecosystems?
5: Okay, yes. Uh, My name is uh, Tony Harwood. Uh, I'm from uh, western Montana. My career was as a land and fire manager with the Confederated Salish and
2: Kootenai tribes. Tony helped lead a unique project, one that combined Western science with oral history. He says there's a word in the Salish and Kootenai languages.
5: The word meant keeper of fire, and that's before Flint and those type of things, where they would carry the fire with them in a uh, buffalo horn or a uh, clamshell.
2: People used fire for lots of reasons. For instance, if you wanted a home where the buffalo roam,
5: tribal elders were interviewed back then, and they would talk about if they had uh, uh, a good fall buffalo hunt. After the uh, the hunt was completed, the natives would uh, set fire to the hunting ground that they were le- as they were leaving, and they were essentially uh, leaving fire as a gift spiritually. Uh, to the animal.
2: This gift of fire turned into freshly renovated grasslands that burst back greener and tastier the next year. Studies show that buffalo prefer grass in areas that burned the year before. And that's not all.
5: To uh, keep an abundance of food and, and medicinal plants.
2: Huckleberries and service berries and choke cherries, staples in some indigenous diets, all thrive after fires.
5: And when they were camping, they would... Uh, ...apply fire to reduce uh, pests and rattlesnakes and bugs and beetles.
2: All of this burning kept forests open and grassy between the trees. Tony says that the scientists told them that lightning was causing fires to sweep through every 10 to 15 years. But Native people...
5: When you had Indian, Native American influences on that, uh, the fire's return interval or frequency was, was more like four or five years.
2: When we think farming... We think tilling soil, planting crops. But this was a different kind of agriculture. In a way, they were cultivating a whole landscape. And there was a side effect too. When you burn every four or five years, there's not much left in the woods to burn each time around. The fires stay small, like the one from the beginning of the episode that a turtle could outrun. They're safe, they're boring, not like the ones that have been ravaging the West in recent years.
5: It was based on a keen observation on burning and the results of burning. Uh, An interim process over 15,000 generations that provided a a basis for uh, traditional ecological knowledge that was passed down through uh, oral tradition.
3: What changes? Um, A lot of the burning has stopped. Uh, the native peoples are are removed uh, by diseases, by war, by forcible relocation. Well, who's that? Well, I'm Steve Pine, I'm a professor at uh, Arizona State University and uh, self-proclaimed pyromantic, not a pyromaniac important distinction.
2: Once European colonization got underway, there was a lot of logging going on and we were just leaving the debris branches and wood chips left lying around in the forest. Logging takes the big stuff and
3: leaves the little. Fire burns the little stuff and leaves the big.
2: All that little stuff left in the forest was drying out, turning into fuel.
3: And uh, this sets into motion really large, historic fires that are damaging to communities and people. Uh, Probably the 1825 fire in Miramichi, New Brunswick, uh, Maine, that complex is, is the first real announcement of that. Three, three million acres plus, uh, lots, of, lots of damage. And this continues. Uh, and it's accelerated by uh, the railroads, which not only throw lots of sparks, but now create markets so you can haul off the timber and leave lots of debris behind. And these are, these are taking out large communities, hundreds of people being killed, But then in 1910, there was a fire in the northern Rockies.
2: It was called the Big Burn, the Devil's Broom Fire, and the Big Blow-Up.
3: So 78 firefighters died in six incidents during the blow-up. The Army was called out, uh, went a million dollars in debt. The next four chiefs of the Forest Service would all be personally on the fire lines. So this entire generation was seared uh, by the memory of those fires and determined that it would never happen again on their watch and really set into motion the modern era of active fire suppression.
2: Fire went from being a tool that we used to create places we liked to live to being something we feared, something we had to keep tightly controlled. Suddenly, every time there was a fire out in the woods, whether there was a building nearby or not, firefighters were there to put it out. A force that had been driving the evolution of our forests and prairies in America for tens of thousands of years abruptly stopped. And as a result, today's forests look nothing like the forests that used to exist here. Which brings us back to the woods from the beginning, our 10 by 10. Just to our left, you can see probably 25, 30 feet into the underbrush. And to our right, it's very open. There's a lot of ferns. You're right.
4: The ferns, the
2: sweet fern, the bracken
4: fern, the blueberry.
2: This is Adele Fenwick, another fire ecologist up here in New Hampshire, and we're strolling through the stand of trees that the Nature Conservancy set on fire at the beginning of the story, except eight months later, and it's very different. So, But but as soon as we got here, you said, this is lovely.
4: It's so open.
2: All the green has bounced back, and the shrubs are all budding out. The fire has opened everything up. The undergrowth is low and easy to walk through.
4: So you have more taller trees, a bit more close canopy, but then you have wide open. So it's gonna recruit different herbaceous species for the pollinators. It's gonna recruit different uh, bird types. It'll just support similar, but somewhat different species.
2: To give you a sense of Adele's vibe, let me just give you a little anecdote. Twice during our interview, she picked a tick off her skin and nonchalantly, without stopping her sentence, impaled it on her pocket knife, which she says is like no big deal.
4: I work in the woods for a living. It's a routine occurrence.
2: (laughs) She researches high altitude red pine stands and how often they used to burn here in New England. But I was stuck on this question. Why are these ecosystems here? Are they here because lightning strikes set fires or because humans did? And does that matter? There are these, there are these accounts of, of the colonial Europeans arriving and they're like, the forests are like parks and you yeah. can ride a horse at a full gallop through the woods. <laughs> but like, that, that has been cited as, as evidence that, that there was this, this like really um, robust regime of native burning. Um, and, and when you talk to the fire researchers, they're, they're a little less willing to sort of say, like, yes, the Native Americans had, you know, were burning constantly, and, were, and they're, they're just more measured in what they're willing to say, you know. Peer,
4: peer-reviewed studies on the line, is <laughs> what you have there. No one wants to hang themselves out to dry. Right. Yes, that's the nature of being a research scientist, is you stand behind research evidence. We do know that there were um, Abenaki tribes here, the Ossipee, and we do know that they did burn for myriad reasons. So I can't say a certain percentage, but it was a lot of area. So however frequently Native Americans did burn uh, is interesting, and it's helpful to know, but... You know, I'm okay with that if we don't have hard answers, if my goal is to restore and maintain biodiversity and keep species from going extinct.
2: We've used fire to dramatically reshape our environment for as long as we've known how to make it. And in that way, the last hundred years or so of aggressively putting out every fire that starts has been this odd departure from that history. And now we're paying the price for that strategy in the form of deadly wildfires out west and disappearing pine barrens here in the northeast. The woods doctors, though, have a prescription in mind, and all it takes is a couple dozen firefighters and a drip torch, if we can get over our fear of the flames. (coughs) Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, and Taylor Quimby, with help from Hannah McCarthy, Justine Paradise, Nick Capadice, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is the director of Cutting Jargon from Early Podcast Drafts. The wooey buffer? It's a
5: wildland urban interface buffer. What's a (laughs) wooey?
3: Yeah, the wooey
2: buffer. The wooey buffer? I like wooey buffer, though. You like the wooey. I don't know how I'm going to use that in the rest of my life, but so I'm going to try to. I'm going to insert it in the little social situations. Special thanks to Melissa Thomas Van Gundy and Greg Nowacki of the Forest Service, William Patterson of UMass Amherst, and many folks at the Nature Conservancy who helped us to figure this story out. If you don't already, might I suggest that you follow us on Twitter? There are going to be some epic threads on fire ecology and other science-y stuff. If you want to learn more about the subjects we get into, we're at outside in radio also we're going to be switching up our facebook presence we're going to make it into a facebook group hoping to inspire a little bit more discussion of the episodes so if you are on facebook and are interested in interacting with us there just open it up and search for outside in radio music in this episode was by franco Luzzi, blue dot sessions jason leonard and ikimashu aoi Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.